Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. Thanks for tuning in to the Blissful Prospecting Podcast. This is a podcast for reps and sales teams who love landing big meetings with their prospects, but hate having to send hundreds of cold emails that get very little to no responses in order to land those meetings that we all want. So thanks for tuning in today. We're talking to Ryan Heafy. He's a director of sales at Qualia, and we're going to be talking about becoming expert advisors, finding pain, and creating urgency. Let's get to the episode. You know, this topic of expert advisor, and sometimes you hear consultant and all kinds of other terms thrown around, but it really is at the root of the reason why most prospects don't want to meet with the people that are prospecting to them. (laughs) They don't really feel like they could learn anything. You know, if someone's going to reach out to you, interrupt your day or what you're doing, and they're going to reach out to you or send emails, make phone calls, and you did not ask them to do that, If you're thinking from the prospect's point of view, if there isn't a compelling reason, which in most cases it's, you know, maybe I don't even know what that reason is, but I know that talking to you would be helpful. And it's the same thing that a lot of people, and by the way, I'm still working on this too, because sometimes I have a little bit of trouble getting sales leaders to take a meeting with me too, because they don't want to hear about tactics. And I'm a really big tactics guy when it comes to, to cold calling. They want to hear about some more of the bigger you know, kind of things. So it's something I'm working on too. But one of the things that really gets people to take meetings with me is talking about what I can share with them based on other sales teams, other sales development orgs that I'm working with that are exactly like theirs or larger or growing faster. So there's something that I can share and they look at me as someone, at least the people that are willing to take a call with me, I can speak for those. They look at me as someone they could potentially learn from. So what you have to ask yourself is when you're reaching out to people, are you presenting the offer in a way and showing business acumen where they feel like they're, you are someone that they could learn from? So Ryan Heafy, and the reason why I bring this topic up is we end up talking about this a lot in our interview today. It was, it was sort of unexpected. But he talks about how they onboard. So if you're a sales leader, this would be a really good one for you too. And if you're a rep, take note of some of the things that they do during their onboarding process, but how they teach people about product, industry. I mean, their people don't even pick up a phone or prospect for an entire two weeks. It isn't until week three and four that they actually start prospecting because they want to build the business acumen around the industry and the problems and all that other stuff. The second thing that we're going to talk about too is how do we find pain? And with pain, we go into his definition of pain too, because some people talk about problems, challenges, it all really comes down to impact. So the thing that they're feeling, what's the impact of it? How can we dig two, three, four layers deeper? And then lastly, we're going to talk about how to create urgency. And a lot of people are of the belief that you can't create urgency. I 100% disagree. I don't think that you can manufacture something that's not there, but you can certainly present a problem to someone in a way that they didn't think about and quantify that problem in a way that gets them really thinking about taking action. So we're going to dig into all that stuff. I'm super excited for you to listen to this episode. And before we get to it, a couple things. You're already listening to our podcast, so I'd appreciate a like or subscribe so we can keep the free stuff coming. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I post every single day on on LinkedIn there where you can find tons of free stuff. If you're looking for some extra help, so there's a lot of free content out there. And if you're a rep, 
If you're kind of looking for something that goes above and beyond the free stuff and are looking to get help from me personally, so feedback on your emails, building a talk track together, we have a program called our Prospecting Bootcamp where people exactly like you are getting help from me on their emails so that they can set more meetings or their talk tracks, whatever it might be. Make sure to go to blissfulprospecting.com to check that out. It's under the programs menu, or you can send me an email at jason at blissfulprospecting.com. Same thing for companies. We have an accelerator program, very similar content, but it's working with me privately. If you feel like your team could use a boost in the prospecting side of things, uh, we do have a really cool program. We got some really good results with some large companies, both big and small, actually. Companies with two BDRs and companies with 150. So let me know if you're looking for some extra help to either motivate yourself and get some frameworks in place for yourself to get better results or for your team. Reach out to me at blissfulprospecting.com or Jason at blissfulprospecting.com. And let's get to the episode today. All right. So like I said, I always like to ask an icebreaker to get it started. What did you eat for breakfast as a kid? Oh, man. The 90s were a beautiful time. I mean, the cereals we had yeah. were <laughs> insane. So I would say a variety, a vast variety of cereals that were filled with sugar and coloring and corn syrup was probably the go-to. Did you have a favorite? Oh, probably Reese's Puff cereal. I'm, I'm still a big Reese's Cups fan just in life, Frozen. So yeah, the cereal, we're wrong. That's funny. Yeah, I uh, Reese's Cocoa Puffs, that was my jam too. And then Cherry Pop-Tarts. But you kind of look at what you ate and it's like, I don't know about you, I'm, I can't believe I used to eat that stuff. And I worry about why I was like really low energy all the time because I played a lot of sports and stuff like that. But uh, I always like to ask this question. You can learn a lot about someone by the breakfast that they ate as a kid. Oh, yeah. And I'm a dad of a toddler, so I still have cherry Pop-Tarts in the house as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> Before we dig into the topic today, how did you get into sales? Because you have a lot of interesting experience and kind of an interesting story of how you got into B2B sales. But where did, where did it start? What was your first sales job? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try to cut through like a lot of the, the long part of the story. Early on, um, basically post-grad, I was doing what probably most people do, but maybe a little bit different. I was bartending and serving in restaurants and doing all that stuff. And I, I spent about a year living out in the U.S. Virgin Islands on St. Thomas, working at the Ritz-Carlton there. So, you know, really cool experience. And we could probably tackle that another day. But essentially, I was still in the service industry, right? Hospitality. And um, there came a point where I had seen so many President's Club uh, members come through the Ritz-Carlton on their annual trip. And uh just be being like really just proud and happy of their achievement and having this huge reward. And I basically thought like, I want that. I want that. <laughs> I don't want to be on this side of this uh, transaction anymore. So uh, yeah, I, I moved back to Florida and basically, basically started plotting, like, how do I get into a job like this? And like anything, it was indeed applications all over the place. I ended up applying to a, a marketing type sales company here in Austin, interviewed with the VP of sales who said, you know, you got the job, come on out. And so I sold everything I had and packed myself and my dog in the car and showed up um, with, I didn't even have anywhere to live just yet and showed up to start my first cold calling job of 150 nice cold calls a day and hustling. So, and this is that outbound engine. It is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Cool company. And were you, you interviewed with Scott Lease? Was that who you interviewed with? Yeah. <laughs> oh, funny. Okay. Story's there for another time, uh, surely, I'm assuming, too. But uh, with the first cold calling experience, what was, do you remember much about that? What was that like? Was there anything that you struggled with? Anything that came natural to you? What was, what was that like? Yeah, I, I think the thing I struggled with the most was, you know, in hospitality, you are measured, meaning your tip is measured by how friendly you are and and how quick you are and how good the service is. So that there's skills there that translate, um, but there's certainly an aspect I think in sales where you are, it's a disservice to yourself to be too nice and too friendly. And there are certainly times you got to take the wheel and, and you're driving the prospect. And so early on, I think that was one of the first things that was tough for me to grasp is like, this is not a service anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm not serving here. I'm leading you to something that's going to help you. And um, eventually I got it, but it was tough at first. Let's talk about that actually, because I'm really curious as a sales leader, how you instill that in your team, because I wrote a post on LinkedIn, this is a month or two maybe ago, and and it was about this topic. Hey, stop being so nice. And it gets a lot of weird responses because some people interpret that to mean that you should be an asshole to your prospects. And I'm not saying that, like don't be an asshole to people, but this being nice and needing the approval and being too afraid to step on someone's toes, that sort of thing, it really is kind of a major turnoff, you know, to a lot of people. But can you expand on that a little bit more around the nice thing that you talked about and how do you, how do you talk to your team about that kind of stuff? How does that get trained, coached, whatever it might be? Absolutely. I I think some of it for a lot of people like myself is there's a level of personal growth to it, right? It's like you might have to fundamentally change some of just the mannerisms of who you are. And uh, that might be an unpopular statement, but it sure as heck served me well. And it served me in all aspects of my life of having more confidence and conviction and, and, you know, be more in charge and not a pushover and things. But as it relates to sales, anybody who knows me knows that I am a firm believer that sales is not all about relationships. I think of sales as you need to be an expert advisor where the only thing your prospect cares about is you helping to produce a desirable outcome. Like, you know, I don't think they want to be your buddy. I don't think they want to hang out. I don't think they want to talk about sports. They need you to produce a desirable outcome. So in that regard, some of the ways that I like to talk about it sometimes is, you know, think about some other relationships in your life where you want that person to give you expert advice and you don't want it to be super friendly. For example, if, uh, and this is an extreme example, let's say you were talking to your doctor and they had some really serious news to deliver. You wouldn't want them to be like cracking jokes and elbowing you in the ribs and kind of like softening that message. You would want them to say like, here's the deal, Jason. If you don't change your lifestyle, like in the next two weeks, it's going to have really serious repercussions. Just that you can hear the tone right there. There's a tone of urgency. There's a tone of seriousness. And so depending on what you sell, that level of pain and urgency can actually be that real, right? It it depends on the product, right? But there are businesses all the time that have uh, major sort of, I hate to use the word failures, but things that have a massive impact. And for somebody who's running even a small business, that it has a major impact. It's the difference 
from them being able to send their kids to school, you know, buy a car that has extra car seats because they got a baby on the way, like things like that. It, you, you can actually tangibly think about the impact on a small business. So going back to the point, when you're a seller, you have to look at your role as somebody who is there to actually help and make an impact and not somebody who's there to kind of just build rapport and see if somebody takes the bait on what it is you have to offer. That's kind of how I think about it. And we talk about it that way a lot. It's interesting because, and I'm curious with your take on the relationships piece of things too, because I come from B2C sales. I sold like house painting services for a while and led, you know, sales teams of people selling that. And it was very relationship based because it was $3,000 to paint your house. And it's a fairly commoditized service, right? <laughs> Where you kind of pick the person that, you, that feels the best. And when you look at B2B sales, though, a lot of times the people spending the money, it's not their money. You know, the people that you're selling to, and it depends on the size, you know, how transactional it might be on the SMB side versus enterprise. It seems like there's so much more at stake for making a bad decision of the software that you're going to use or the vendor that you're going to bring in where that is like 95% of the focus and the relationship piece, you can only like mess up. Basically you could be a complete jerk to someone and that could turn them off, you know, type of thing. But can you expand a little bit more on that with a relationship piece? Cause this is another thing I see a lot of people talking about and it seems to be kind of two extremes. You got the challenger thing where, Hey, relationships don't matter. And then you got people that want to take their clients out to the golf course on the weekend, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Again, I think it depends on the space that you're in and obviously, you know, some of, some of the old school golf course, country club, handshake deals still exist out there. But I mean, speaking of challenging, I'll challenge you, you know, I, in a B2C model, I often have people come out to give quotes on a home project I'm working on and all that. And yeah, I, I want this person to do a good job and I want to vet them to make sure they're going to do a great job. But sometimes I find myself having people who are, they want to hang around, they want to chit chat. And all I'm, all I'm thinking is like, man, give me the quote and tell me what you're going to do because I got to get back to work. Like I got stuff to do. So that, that even tends to turn me on, or excuse me, turn me off. But as it relates to a complex sale, yeah, I think, you know, especially when you're selling into older industries, a lot of what you're selling against are the relationships ships that are intact and you know, you're kind of going on the offensive on these relationships and that can be difficult because people don't like to break off relationships they don't it's, it feels icky it feels bad nobody likes to break off a relationship but certainly for us you know if you can come in and show somebody that despite having this great relationship with that vendor or service there are pain points or there are holes that are not being addressed by their current situation. And then you as an expert advisor, show them like, here's some of the other ways that you can improve that. That relationship is no longer as valuable as they once thought, right? So that's definitely our approach and something we deal with a lot. How do you think about then, what if a person's looking at two solutions and they're fairly, they're pretty much the same thing. There isn't one piece of software that's better than the other necessarily. It's, God, I might get in trouble for saying it. it's kind of like outreach versus sales loft. <laughs> yeah. You're, uh, commodity, right? Yeah. Something that's a little more commoditized. Where do you think the relationship 
And when I say relationship, I'm mostly, I think a better word for me to use actually, because I'm very much on the same page with you. I don't want to BS with people, but talking to someone that's likable that I'm going to enjoy spending 30 minutes with, and they have to have the other stuff though, has to be a good solution. They have to know what they're talking about. They have to educate me. They got to do all that other stuff. But the difference, does it fit in there in your eyes at all? in terms of two solutions that are kind of from the prospect's point of view, at least fairly equal in what they do, what's the difference maker there usually? I still think the aspect of taking an expert advisor approach rings through over the relationship. And here's why. You have two companies that have really similar products, not a huge differentiator between features and things like that. And you have one person that maybe is more thinking like relationships. I'm going to be super nice. I'm going to talk all about how great our support is. I'm going to talk about how great our product is. I'm going to, you know, do a really diligent job of following up. And this person's really going to like it. Right. Now, on the other side, you have someone that, you know, they're not a jerk, right? But they're not some whining and dining. They're spending more time understanding on a deeper, 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 deeper level. What is this person dealing with that's painful for them in their everyday life? What is it like for them when they're dealing with this painful stuff? What do they go home and complain to their husband, wife, girlfriend about, about work and then come back and have to deal with it again? And I think that as a salesperson, if you're the person who's proven that, like, man, I really understand what you're going through and how it's impacting your business. And because of that, I really understand the impact of what we can do. That solution becomes so, you know, just a such more valuable value prop than the person who doesn't quite understand on that really deep level, but still has a great offer and is really nice, is a great guy, you know? So that's the way I look at it for sure. It's interesting. There's almost space for both, depending on the situation too, you know? I'm thinking of this, I have a client that I work with and he plays guitar. So what we talked about for 10 minutes on the first call that we did together was guitar. Cause he had all these guitars and amps in his background and you know, I play guitar, but the, I didn't win. That's not why I won the sale though. You know what I mean? That might've broke the ice a little bit more to where we could be more honest with each other maybe. So it's kind of interesting. I want to talk to you about this expert advisor thing because, and this is, we're kind of taking this in a different direction <laughs> that we talked about, which is fun. This expert advisor thing, I'm just so on the same page with you around that. And I'm curious how with like an SDR or BDR type of team or with a team that's maybe very young, how do you teach that? How do you scale that as a sales org? If you're thinking from as a sales leader standpoint, how do you create expert advisors on your, on your team so that you have these really smart, intelligent, really value-driven salespeople out there prospecting and selling every day. How do you, how do you think about scaling that? That is a fantastic question. So if you were to ask me, and I think you are where I stand, maybe between, you know, full cycle AEs and SDRs, I have historically been like full cycle sales AE till I die. Um, now that said, we, we have, um, more recently in our org incorporated an SDR team, um, because they're a really good fit for what, they're going to do now. So to sort of backtrack on your question, when we were just an AE team, it takes a, uh, you know, a really massive level of training. It's training around the product, it's training around the industry, it's, it's literally making you an expert advisor. Like you need to be prepared 
to go up to somebody who's you know 30 years your senior and has run an expert you know run a really successful business and then potentially call their baby ugly and be ready to back it up and, and that's essentially what we're what we're training but the x factor between the product and the industry stuff is are you somebody who can understand on a true level what is somebody dealing with that is painful some people might say you have to be empathetic that's another way of saying it right but like, can you hear something that somebody says and dig into it two or three layers to truly understand what they're dealing with? And then you combine that with the industry knowledge and the product knowledge and all that to back it up. And, and then you become that person who's like, I get you. I can stand in your shoes. I get what you're dealing with. And here's what we can do to help. So I think it's kind of three-pronged. Now, for SDRs, that's more difficult, right? They're, they're handling just a slice of the conversation. And so for us, we are, we're not skewing as heavily on the industry and the training stuff. And we're skewing very heavily on, can you understand this person, what they're dealing with and turn that into a meaningful reason that is the next call. Like as soon as you have a meaningful pain point, a compelling business case from that discovery, from that understanding, you have a green light to shove that person into a next call that's going to provide so much value to what they're dealing with. So a work in progress there for us, but that's currently how it's working out. Yeah. I mean, dude, there's so much we could dig into there. I'm, <laughs> I'm curious, like with the training around the product and industry aspect, is there anything you can share about so we can hear some examples of how do you give someone a 10,000 foot view of the industry that has no industry experience and how do you educate them on kind of like how, how Qualia fits into the grand scheme of the people that you're reaching out to in their business and the other options that they have and the problems they're having and all this other stuff. What are some of the stuff you incorporate? Is there any, anything that you could share there? Absolutely. I mean, anybody who might hear this, who works at Qualia knows this, our upfront training is immense. It is a tough, tough month. So basically, in the first week, we start with the industry training, uh, which is everything from what is title insurance, what's a mortgage, what's a deed, uh, all that good stuff. And it's a week long of really intensive knowledge around the industry, just the in industry info. Week two is sort of a dive right into the product. And the nature of our product is it does everything that these businesses need to do. So it's incredibly robust. And it's a week long of just focusing on basically scratching the surface on the product. And then the following two weeks, we do sales boot camp where we're practicing our cold calls. We're practicing objections and rebuttals. Uh, we are working on sort of like skill trainings, like, you know, how to get past or eat or get with a gatekeeper, that type of stuff. So basically at the end of that month long chunk of drinking from the fire hose, you're like dangerous enough to put together all the pieces. And that's really just like where you've begun. Now, for us, I truly believe that the only way that we've been at, as successful as we are as a company is because we have a culture of collaboration. Everyone and anyone is willing to help each other out, answer questions, fill in the blanks. And it's just, there's such an immense amount of information. Nobody can know it all. So to more directly answer your question, we get them to that point of being dangerous. And then everything else from there is like a team effort of like, 
how can we continue learning? How can we continue understanding how market trends and just current events and all that are affecting our prospects and how we tie all that together to create that compelling business case or, or help to, again, establish a meaningful need that is the reason for our call, right? What's, uh, this is, yeah, like I said, there's so much to dig into here that I'm curious about. Because this is the, and the reason why is this is the thing that I see missing in most of the work that I do, at least. And it's it's mostly with SDR and BDR teams, but there I do work with a lot of AEs and, and full cycle reps outside of you know tech and SaaS as well. But it's the, you're calling on this person. And the reason why they don't want to take a meeting with you is because you don't really sound like someone that they would be able to learn from. There's that business acumen that everyone talks about that's missing. And with the industry and the product stuff, what's the acid test? How do you know what, like if you're talking to one of your reps, how do you know, how would you test them to know if they know their shit or not? You know what I mean? If they're battle tested, ready enough to talk to and challenge a small business under they're talking to that's, that's been doing it for 30 years. How, how do you know when someone, when you've given them enough and when they understand? On the most baseline level, all of our brand new trainees, if you will, they do at the end of week three of that first month, they do a cold call certification where they um, American Idol style uh, pitch one of uh, the three of our leadership team. And then we do a big feedback session. And um, it's not easy. We make it a realistic stress test. And then the following week, similar thing for their demo. So um, basically running us through a demo of the product, we make it a total stress test and we push them really, really hard. So that's kind of the, if you don't pass those, which rarely ever happens, but if you don't pass those, we're not getting on the phone with somebody. But even then, I think particularly in, in our sale, the very best people on the team take all of that immense amount of training we offer. They take all of the ongoing training we offer and they still take it upon themselves to read up on market trends, look at housing wire and, and publications like that. And they make themselves that expert advisor. So, you know, certainly not everybody's going to start there. You know, they're going to start out sounding a little bit green, but the expectation is the expectation I set even before I hire somebody is in order to succeed ultimately in this role, you are going to ingrain yourself in the industry. You're going to understand it front to back. And you're going to be able, you should be able to have a conversation with a title company owner of 40 years, like you guys are bud sitting at the bar and talking about like business trends. You should be prepared. So it's a work in progress over tenure, but there's a lot up front that we do to get people as close as we can at, you know, in the beginning. What do you think keeps reps from building this type of expert advisory acumen? What do you think keeps them from? from doing that? I think it's definitely a combination of things. The first thing looking internally is just, do you, I, I talked about this on a podcast with Tom Alamo. Do you feel like a kid that's been handed a pitch and you're just sent out to try to say the words and hope that the words elicit some magical positive response or somebody buys, or do you fully understand what it is that you're looking for and how to fix it? So I think it's kind of a combination of your own confidence in, in what you're doing. And then I think the other part of it is just, I hate to say it, but it's like laziness. Like 
in a lot of sales, you can get away with learning the script, basically saying it, and there's a percentage of the time, whatever that is, that it results in a demo set or it results in a, in a follow-up call. And in a lot of sales, you can see success like that. But then in a lot of sales, people carry that over to something else and it's just not enough. It's, it's so surface level. Nobody's buying, quite literally, but nobody's buying you. They're not buying the fact that you're an expert. They're not buying the fact that you can actually help them. So I would hope that in any space, you know, I think, I can't remember if we had started the podcast yet, but we were talking about how I feel really passionately that as salespeople, we need to be so much better. And so we can't be lazy about our own education. We can't be lazy about our development and we can't be lazy about our approach with prospects. So before I tear off on a tangent there. No, I love this. (laughs) Is there anything else around this becoming an industry expert? Anything else that you feel like is maybe a little outside of the box, either that you provide to your reps or that you see your best reps going out and doing themselves? You mentioned just following industry you know, kind of publications and sites. Is there anything else that's maybe a little outside of the box and stuff that you see people doing to educate themselves in the industry? There's podcasts out there. There's things like that. I think there's also, this is true in any sale. So there's rep A who hears a response that they don't quite understand from a prospect and they go, okay. And they let it just fly in one ear and out the other ear. And then there's another rep, rep, let's call it rep B, who hears that same thing and basically just says, explain that further. Can you elaborate on that? And they actually seek to understand. So there's a million different topics that I can mention within the title insurance industry and real estate, where if you were lazy, you could hear it and be like, I don't know what that means. Uh, So I'm just going to hope they change the subject really quickly. Or (laughs) you could be that person that says, this clearly is something my prospect cares about because they just said it let me seek to understand what it actually means. And I think if you're doing that all the time, you're becoming more of an expert with every repetition of it. From a leadership standpoint, it's that training, the curiosity, that's getting that, that habit in there, that understanding, like you said. One other thing I want to clarify too and point out is it sounds like you don't have people make cold calls until three, four weeks in. Yep. Why is that? Because you'll hear the opposite of that too, where, hey, get them on the phones as quickly as possible. Why, why do you guys have them wait? Why did you make that decision? I think, well, in reality, we normally assign them a few accounts in that third week and have portions of their day, like kind of just dipping their toe in the water on some calls. And then the other portion of the day continuing training. So we do start a little bit earlier, but the reality is they're just not ready. And for us in our industry, it's very finite. You know, there's probably 10,000 plus prospects that we can sell this core offering to. And uh, we're reaching out to all of them all the time. And we just can't afford to put somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about, who isn't going to provide value on the phone with somebody and potentially uh, lose their ear for however long it takes. Got to be ready. I love that. So this finding the pain piece of it, there's the expert advisor piece. The finding the pain is... How do you define pain? And the reason I ask that is that sometimes you hear problems, sometimes you hear challenge. I don't know if you use those terms interchangeably, but what is a what does it mean to you to find the pain? And do you have an example so we could hear what what is a pain point? What is that versus something else that's maybe more shallow than that? 
that is not really getting to the core. I think that there are things that people, generally speaking, to the layman salesperson, when they think of pain, I think they're thinking of a, a symptom of a pain. I think of it as the impact of that of that symptom. So I'll cheat for anybody who wants a job at Qualia. One of the things I ask in every single interview is, walk me through what's really painful for the people that you sell to. And the most common answer I hear all the time is, well, it's basically time and money. So we do this. How is time and money painful? Actually, time and money are actually really great things. That's not painful. <laughs> what, what is painful are the things that are costing you time and what that cost of time is having an impact on downstream, you know, like that. So when you're looking at anything, I think when you're pitching, you, you can come in with a set of assumptions that your product solves for. Maybe it's, uh, let, let's use our sale. It's like, uh, you don't have a great workflow, workflow tool to manage tasks. Or maybe you're spending a, a massive amount of time reaching out to customers to collect basic information, right? Data entry type stuff. Again, I think it's a misconception to think, well, they're spending a lot of time reaching out to customers to collect information and they have to enter it in. That's their pain. That's not the pain. The pain is what is the impact of them using all that time on a redundant sort of menial task that is affecting them where they could be using that time on something much more valuable. So there's always like a layer one and then there's layer two and layer three. The best sellers get to layer two and layer three and know how to get there. And I think the most common in any sale, it's level one. And so potential buyers don't necessarily recognize that their pain is as deep as it actually is. And so the value prop doesn't hit as hard. It's critical, the pain is critical. I think if you don't, if you can't establish a meaningful pain point, then you probably have no business being on the phone with this person. I love this. So if we use the manual data entry, maybe as an example, how does that, what is the level two and three of that? And is it different for each prospect or do you kind of go down that path of how it typically impacts other people like them? How do you, how do you go about that part of it? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the space, but generally speaking, they all kind of bob and weave. It's like, okay, so you're doing a ton of manual data entry. So you hired this person who's super skilled and they're using a majority of their time doing something that like an intern or somebody's high school kid could do for them. And because they're not using that time on the valuable tasks, the valuable tasks are being backed up and maybe that's affecting customer service time or, or turnaround times or capacity for work and things like that. Other layers of that would be like, you know, how many times when you're retyping information from maybe a paper clipboard or whatever, how many times is there a mistake because of just copying over and over? Okay, that's not pain. What happens when there is a mistake? Oh, we have to go back and fix it. Okay, a little bit deeper. Okay, so what happens when you're having to go back and redo all this work that you already did? well, we're not getting ahead on the rest of the work we have to do, okay? And how often is it that you guys are falling behind on some of the work that you have to do? Oh, it's just the nature of the business. Well, no, it's not, it shouldn't be. It's because you're having these pain points that run totally downstream from this basic thing of data entry. So there's layers, you, you just have to know how to get there. And is that something you would do in a cold call? Absolutely. I love that. So you're a fan of doing some light discovery during the cold call? 
Oh yeah. Our approach is basically to jump into a call and get as quickly into a conversation about pain points as possible. We're not a big fan of, you know, did I catch you at a bad time? I know I'm calling you out of the blue. You know, do you have a Here's what we do? It's just, Hey, this is Ryan DP. Hey, the reason for my call is I wanted to know what software you're using right now. As soon as they tell me the software, I'm firing away at things I know that that typically cause pain points and I'm digging into how it's affecting them downstream within their org. And as soon as I can identify one or two of those things, again, that's my green light to say, like, obviously we have a lot to talk about here. I really want to show you how we fix these exact problems for people so that you can have X positive outcome. And then I'm going to identify. I'm such a big fan of doing this light discovery during the cold call because it creates a need for you to have a meeting. And it creates a need for them to show up to the meeting too. I mean, there's a lot of people that will ask for the meeting. That's like the first thing they do. Hey, Ryan, Jason with Blissful Prospecting, we do X, Y, Z. I was calling to set up a meeting with you later this week so we can unpack it a little bit more. And even if the person says yes, what's going to get them to show up to that meeting? There isn't really a compelling reason for them to show up. You didn't really leave much of an impression with them either. Yeah, it's a no-show in the making. So one of the things, I joined the AISP virtual summit the other week, and one of the topics that came up that I gave a, a blurb on is that I think that we are trending, or maybe it's always been this way, I don't know, but it certainly feels like we're trending more and more towards a really lazy approach to selling, where we call, and exactly what you said, we call and we say, here's what we do, I'd love to get some of your time and learn more about you and see if we're a fit. To me, I'm already thinking, if you don't already know you can do something for me, why the hell am I going to take the time for you to sit there, ask me a bunch of qualifying questions and figure out what it is you want to sell me? Like that's a terrible buying experience for anybody in any space. And so one of the things I talk about when I say as salespeople, we have to be better is we have to do the legwork. And what I mean by that is Again, this might fluctuate for different orgs, but let's take, for example, a B2B space where you have a company and there's people who do different jobs at the company. And whatever it is you sell has an impact across all those people. My thinking, and, and certainly my philosophy that I strongly believe in, is you should be calling across those different contacts and personas. And again, digging in, doing that discovery, just you know, drumming up a meaningful pain point to create this compelling business case. And that way, there's a major difference when you approach that decision maker and say, well, on one end, you have people saying, hey, I know nothing about you. Let me book some time with you. I'm going to qualify you and I'm going to figure out what it is I could possibly sell you if I have anything at all. That's bad. On the other end, you've done all this research. You've found out uh, pain points that they probably don't even know they have. And so that call is very different where it's like, hey, this is Ryan Beefy working with Qualia. So I've been talking with people at your org and here's some of the things I've found and here's how it's impacting some of the things that I think you guys think is just run at the mill. And I would love to show you exactly how it is, how we solve for those things and how it can get you to, again, X positive outcome. If we go ahead and book 30 minutes, I can pretty much guarantee you that you're going to see an immense amount of value in fixing themselves. That's a call we're taking, right? I've already done the work. I don't have to ask the prospect to do the work for me. I've done the work. And to me, it starts to become a no-brainer if you're doing that really well.
you're connecting the dots for the prospect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the other piece of it too that I, you know, that comes from this business acumen and being this expert advisor is what you said at the end there. You can't discount conviction. I know that if we take 30 minutes, you're going to find a ton of valuable stuff here that's going to help you. Being able to say that and actually mean it, it's like, okay, cool, Ryan, you got me, man. Let's let's do it. You know? <laughs> you got to do legwork. You got to be the advisor. You got to be the expert. You got to know your stuff. You got to have the conviction and you have to do the work. And then again, if you're doing all that well, how could anybody say no unless it's just like, uh, they're just not listening to you, like flat out listening but if you're getting a sensible person on the phone, you've done all the work, you've connected the dots, and they have everything to gain in taking your call. And they have everything to lose by not taking the call because you've already paved for them the pain points they're living with. And that's that's where the urgency comes from. So I, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about urgency, but to your point, if you ask for time and you haven't found any pain points, what's the urgency to hop on that call? There is absolutely nothing. But if you've done the work to find out what's happening and what is the negative impact, the urgency comes from like, look, I've discovered this for you. You may have known about it or you may not have known about it. But if you choose to do nothing about it, it's going to keep happening. And I, I think there's a lot of urgency in that. This is actually a really good reminder for me too to really dig into the impact of stuff and really be able to talk to what's the impact of having a team an SDR team where 20% of your team is filling the like half over half the quota. And when you have people underperforming where they can't actually put in any more activity, <laughs> making more calls and emails is actually not going to get them more meetings because they don't have, like they're completely tapped on activity. And what's the impact of that? And then what's the impact of that? Because that's the difference between having a conversation with an SDR manager versus a VP of sales development, you know, like that kind of thing. Absolutely. It's all about the impact. I mean, you, you can take any sales philosophy or theory that you subscribe to, but the reality is they're all the same. They all kind of blend together, right? There's your negative current state and the negative current state contains all the negative impact. And then there's the positive future state, which is hypothetically the impact of implementing whatever you're offering. And so the gap in between is, you know, what you're solving for. It becomes a fairly simple formula. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to ask you, because we got a couple more minutes on the cold calling, the pitch thing. You already talked about it a little bit, but so is that the essential kind of framework for the pitch and the cold call is problem with the current state? Impact of that solution is I can make this go away <laughs> pretty much. Is there, is there anything else that, cause this is a big part of the interview process. It sounds like for you guys is having people pitch you where are people getting it wrong that pitch in the cold call and what, how should they be thinking about it? Yeah. So I'll give my boy Scott Lee a shout out here because, you know, going back to what I learned up front in my sales boot camp at outbound engine is exactly the same way I think about it today. And so Scott's process, it's in his book, Addicted to the Process, is a pain, value, urgency solution in that way. And um, to me, it's just like, it's second nature to think of things that way. So basically, the pain is what is the negative impact of uh, whatever shortcoming they're having right now, whatever that is. What is the negative impact? And there's layers deep to it. The value 
this is where people mix things up. The value is not your product. The value is what is the positive outcome of fixing that pain point. If you fix that, what are things going to look like for you that are positive and better? Then the urgency stage is exactly what I said before. It's okay. We've agreed that this problem exists and we've agreed that this is what it would look like if you were to fix it. The urgency is if you now choose to do nothing about it, what is the opportunity cost you're going to continue to incur with just living with this, this status quo that isn't serving? And then the last part is the solution. So if you think of pain value urgency happening on the cold call, the solution part is just pushing for a demo. You're going to run them through it and you're going to tie the, the products back to the pain points and you're going to build value and all that happens there too. But to answer your question directly, where I think people get it wrong is they do it backwards. It's, hey, this is Ryan at Qualia. We do title and escrow software. And it's really, really great because it's cloud-based and uh, it allows people to scale and it's really user-friendly. And then they're working completely backwards, hoping to find a pain point. But at this point, your, your prospect probably has already tuned you out because this is not relevant to them, or at least they don't think it is yet. So... Pain, value, urgency, solution. That's that's the framework for our for our discussion. I love that. And a good friend of mine, uh, Bilal Batrawi, talks about this, and it's the curse of knowledge. As salespeople, we have all of this information, and we know that this solution will solve a problem that they have, but they've never heard of our solution before, or even have thought about a different way of doing things. So it sounds like kind of like a foreign language, you know, to the people that you're talking to when you start throwing in. Not to mention that almost every salesperson they get a cold call from does that anyways. So it starts to sound the same when you talk about analytics and dashboards and saving time and saving money and doing all these kind of generic you know, sort of things. So anything else, man, around the pitch? Anything else you see people messing up on? Yeah, I was going to say, um, one of the things I really admire about Bilal, I, I follow his content, and I think he's the one who talks a lot about risk aversion, um, which I love because if you read like books like Thinking Fast and Slow and all that, there's all this information about how the fear of loss and risk aversion is so much more of a powerful motivator on human behavior than a promise of gains. So for example, it's like one really bad deal, you know, let's say it's it's a real estate deal or whatever. One really bad deal can hurt you really, really badly. Whereas like a couple of positive deals, you know, they're great, but they're not as bad as having a tanking deal. So I think I love talking about risk inversion because again, when you have found a meaningful pain point and been able to connect the dots on how it's negatively impacting things downstream, that urgency continues to be, okay, how do you avert this risk? This is a risk for you now. You need to do something about it. But yeah, I think um, to tie things off of what you're asking me, I mean, Things I hate, and I, I know that people train on this, so I can, you know, happily offend whoever I offend out there, but the, is now a bad time? I know I called you out of the blue, uh, that type of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's an opportunity to get shut down before you even get started. And uh, I don't know why it exists. So my, <laughs> my advice is if you have something you're trying to solve for somebody who's busy, get, just start solving it for them. You know, if they're too busy to talk to you, they will hang up the phone, you know? <laughs> so my two cents. No, I like it. You like to get straight to the point, you know? And I think a big part of it too is knowing your audience. 
calling these small business owners and these people running these businesses that are extremely busy. You know, dude, this is great. We're out of time, man. Where, where can people go to connect with you? What's the best place to check out you and your company and what you're doing and all that stuff? Yeah. I'm trying to keep up with you on LinkedIn, man. So Ryan Geefy on LinkedIn, connect with me, shoot me a message. Happy to chat about literally anything sales or career professional. Shoot me a message. Let's chat. That was a really fun conversation with Ryan. One of the things that I really liked was when we started talking about that framework he showed that he learned from Scott Lease, actually, who's also been on the show, this pain value urgency solution. So really quantifying the pain and digging into the impact of it. So really think about if that spreadsheet, if they're having to use spreadsheets instead of doing something that's automated with your tool that you're trying to sell them, what's the impact of that? Well, they waste time. Well, what's the impact of that? What could they be spending that time doing? What should they be spending that time doing? And really dig layers deeper into that. So appreciate you tuning in today. Again, if you're just looking for the free stuff, keep tuning into the podcast. We've got plenty more of that coming. And if you're looking for some extra support, either for yourself or your team, you want to work with me and get some feedback on your emails and your outreach so that you can improve your results, check out blissfulprospecting.com or email me at jason at blissfulprospecting.com and I'll do my best to help you out. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll see you next episode.